Hey, it's Gabe. I want to recommend a podcast I think you'll enjoy called What Could Go Right. On What Could Go Right, the hosts, Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varva-Lucas, sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues. They look back at how far society has come and look forward to what it will take to achieve a brighter future. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, listen to What Could Go Right wherever you get your podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey guys, the show's currently on break until the new year, but we've got plenty of classic episodes to tide you over. Enjoy this trip through the show's own history, and I'll see you back here on January 2nd with a batch of brand new episodes. See you then. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello, I'm Holly Fry, and I am sitting in for Tracy V. Wilson this week. It's December 27th, and on this day in 1900, Cary Nation smashed the bar at the Cary Hotel in Wichita, Kansas. And I will tell you why she did that. Nation was born Cary Amelia Moore in Kentucky on November 25th, 1846. On November 21st of 1867, at the age of 21, Cary married a man named Charles Gloyd. But she left Gloyd just a few months into the marriage when she found out she was pregnant. She believed that Charles could not support a family because he was an alcoholic, and Charles died shortly after the baby was born. Carrie next married a journalist, lawyer, and preacher named David Nation, who she believed had been sent to her by God after she prayed for a solution to her problem of being a single mother with no income. The marriage was not very happy, though. According to Carrie's autobiography, the biggest conflict was that she was much more devout than her preacher husband. Carrie's faith continued to grow throughout her life. At a Methodist conference in Texas in 1884, she was deeply moved during one of the sermons. Later writing of the experience, quote, My first impression was that an angel was talking and that the house was ascending to heaven. I felt my natural heart expanding to an enormous size. And this moment led her to the decision that she should devote her entire life to God. Carrie became involved in charity work in Medicine Lodge, Kansas, where she and David had moved, working with women's and children's causes and starting a local chapter of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. It was through her volunteer work, offering religious counseling to imprisoned men, 
that Carrie determined that most criminal behavior was linked to alcohol, which only intensified her fervor for temperance. She began to organize protests, which consisted of groups of women like herself gathering outside or just inside of bars and saloons to sing hymns and talk about God. Nation did not want the men who ran those bars and saloons to get into legal trouble. She literally blamed drink and not them for their sins. And so she tried to counter the lure of alcohol with the promise of religious salvation. She also wrote to the county attorney and state attorney many times to report the sale of alcohol in Kansas, and sometimes got her information on illicit alcohol sales from the men that she ministered to in jail. In June of 1900, Carrie heard what she believed to be a divine voice, speaking to her, promising to stand by her in her fight against alcohol, and directing her to go to Kiowa, Kansas, a place that she knew illegal alcohol sales were taking place. Carrie Nation traveled immediately to Kiowa, walked into a men's club carrying a number of small parcels, and told the owner, quote, Mr. Dobson, I told you last spring to close this place. You did not do it. Now I have come down with another remonstrance. Get out of the way. I do not want to strike you, but I am going to break this place up. And then she hurled her parcels, which were in fact paper-wrapped bricks around the bar, making good on her promise to destroy the place. This was the first in a long series of bar smashings performed by Carrie. But one of the most famous was the assault on the Carrie Hotel on December 27, 1900, a bar that she selected as a target because of an indecent painting that was hanging above the bar. She went at the place with a cane that she had reinforced by strapping an iron rod to it, and she did thousands of dollars of damage in the process, and that resulted in her arrest. Her time in jail did not deter Carrie Nation. She continued in her mission to destroy establishments that served spirits or alcohol of any kind, and she became quite famous in the process, particularly for her use of a hatchet as a means of destruction, something that she adopted during one of her many smashings, which she started to call hatchetations. She went on to start two temperance newspapers, and she made public appearances both in the U.S. and abroad, always with her trusty hatchet and Bible, always speaking about the importance of temperance, and selling souvenir photos of herself holding that hatchet and Bible along the way. Carrie died in 1911 after collapsing during a speaking engagement. She did not live long enough to see the 18th Amendment passed in 1919, which outlawed alcohol sales nationally. She also did not live to see its repeal in 1933, which ended prohibition. If you would like to learn more about Carrie Nation and her life, which is quite fascinating, uh, there is a two-part episode by Stuff You Missed in History Class in the archives. You can find that in July of 2017. I want to thank Chandler Mays and Casey Pegram for their work on the audio for this show. And I want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to This Day in History Class on iHeartRadio's app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tomorrow, you should come back because we're going to talk about an important moment in early film history. When you need 
mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, y'all, it's Eves. I'm at home keeping warm for the holidays, but history does not stop. So let's get into another episode. The day was December 27, 1512. The Laws of Burgos, a set of laws regulating the relationship between Spaniards and indigenous people in the Americas, was promulgated in Burgos' Crown of Castile. Though the laws of Burgos have been recognized for even attempting to improve the treatment of indigenous people, they've been criticized for not truly doing anything to make their lives better. As the Spanish colonized the Caribbean islands, they decimated the indigenous populations that lived there. When Christopher Columbus began his expeditions in the Caribbean, the Taino were the largest group of indigenous people of the Caribbean. But by the mid-1500s, there were barely any Taino people left due to the diseases the Spaniards brought. Indigenous people were often physically and sexually abused. They were overworked and their customs were often stripped away from them and many times they were outright killed. Some people in Spanish colonial society objected to this mistreatment and abuse. Antonio de Montesinos, a friar and missionary on the island of Hispaniola, 
called for an end to the enslavement of and violence committed against the indigenous people on the island in 1511. Many colonists rejected the call and denounced Antonio de Montesinos, but King Ferdinand II called an ecclesiastical and academic panel to decide how to deal with the mistreatment of indigenous people in the Caribbean. On December 27, 1512, Ferdinand II issued the Laws of Burgos, officially known as the Royal Ordinances for the Good Governance and Treatment of the Indians. The laws were originally intended for the island of Hispaniola, which is made up of modern-day Haiti and the Dominican Republic, but they were extended to cover Jamaica and Puerto Rico. The text included 35 laws. Four amendments were later added in July of 1513. The laws established encomenderos' responsibilities toward the people they held in encomienda. Encomienda was a legal system instituted by the Spanish crown that granted colonists the right to collect tribute from and control the labor of indigenous people. The laws of Burgos required that the encomendero, or grantee, provide food, lodging, clothing, and religious instruction to the people they held in encomienda. They also outlined the kinds and amount of labor that could be required of those held in encomienda, they banned corporal punishment of indigenous people except by certain justices. But the laws did not address the treatment of indigenous people during the course of conquest. Encomienda was supposed to reduce the abuses of the earlier system known as repartimiento and allow for a more humane approach to labor for the indigenous people. But encomienda soon proved to be a form of slavery, and most of the laws of the Burgos Code were not enforced. Throughout the early 1500s, people continued to decry the treatment of indigenous people. Bartolome de las Casas, a former encomendero, spoke out against the mistreatment of indigenous people. And in 1530, a royal decree banned the enslavement of indigenous people. But violations happened frequently, and the ban was reversed four years later. But the protests continued, and in 1542, the Council of the Indies wrote the new laws of the Indies for the good treatment and preservation of the Indians. King Charles V enacted the laws, which abolished indigenous slavery and ended the encomienda system. While indigenous people still had to pay tribute, they could not be demanded to work for free. The new laws were opposed by many colonists in the Americas, it did lead to the liberation of some indigenous laborers, but in 1545, the king revoked the controversial law stating that encomenderos could not pass on encomienda to their heirs. A lighter version of the new laws was issued in 1552. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to send us a shout on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at T-D-I-H-C podcast. And if you prefer email, send us a note at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. 
This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that uncovers a little bit more about history every day. I'm Gabe Lussier, and in this episode, we're looking at the early days of firefighting in the Hawaiian Islands. The day was December 27th, 1850. King Kamehameha III established and joined the Honolulu Fire Department the first in the Hawaiian Islands and the only one in the world to include monarchs as active members. Remarkably, this kingly act of public service wasn't a one-time thing. 
In fact, three of the king's successors also joined the island's first fire brigade. Kings Kamehameha IV, Kamehameha V, and Kalakaua were all active members of the Honolulu Fire Department during their reigns. In the mid-1800s, firefighting equipment was limited mostly to buckets and giant water tubs on wheels. Manual water pumps and hoses were available, but not every city had them. In Honolulu, the situation was even worse, because there was no organized system for fighting fires whatsoever. That finally changed on November 6, 1850, when a man named W.C. Park formed the first volunteer fire brigade in the Hawaiian Islands. That same day, as if to highlight the need for such a service, a fire broke out and destroyed 11 homes in Honolulu. The volunteer brigade was not yet an official fire department, but thanks to interest from King Kamehameha III, the volunteers were given equipment to use in the meantime while all the details were sorted out. This amounted to 60 buckets, which were painted red and marked as engine number one. The money for the buckets was issued by the Privy Council, a body of advisors to the king. They made it clear that the buckets were only at the disposal of the fire brigade until the organization of the fire department was official. At such time, they would have to hand over the buckets to the new fire chief. No exceptions. The process took nearly two months, but on December 27, 1850, Kamehameha III signed legislation that formally established the Honolulu Volunteer Fire Department. His contribution wasn't just signing the paperwork, either. When the fire alarm would sound, the king would respond and get to work right alongside the other volunteers. W.C. Park served as the acting fire chief of the newly formed department, but in February of 1851, the governor of Oahu appointed Alexander Cartwright Jr. to the full-time role. Under his leadership, the department grew quickly. In August of that year, Engine Company No. 1 was able to upgrade their buckets to an actual fire engine, which had been purchased secondhand. To be clear, this wasn't a fire truck. It was a water tank and a manual pump mounted on wheels. Most engines were pulled by horses, but in the first few years of the Honolulu department, their engine was pulled by the firefighters themselves. Reportedly, it didn't go so well the first time the engine was used to fight a fire. When the water tank ran dry, the volunteers tried to connect the engine's suction pipe down a nearby water well, but they mistakenly tapped a cesspool instead. They did get the fire put out, but it wasn't pretty. In its first 10 years, the department expanded to include several more hand-drawn engine companies, as well as a hook-and-ladder company. Each of the four engine companies had more than 50 volunteer members, including Company No. 4, which was made up exclusively of native Hawaiians. The four kings who joined the fire department were all members of Company No. 4. In 1878, a fifth engine company was added, this one composed of Chinese volunteers who primarily lived in the Chinatown area of downtown Honolulu. 
The neighborhood was the site of two of the department's worst fires, first in 1886 and then again in 1900. Although it's hard to imagine, the city's firefighters remained unpaid volunteers until the 1880s. And even then, how much and how often they were paid depended on their rank and on how many fires they helped put out. Finally, in 1893, the Hawaiian legislature passed a law funding regular salaries for everyone at the fire department. Around the same time, the department changed in other ways as well. They replaced their manual water pumps with new steam-powered engines, and they even purchased horses to pull them. The first motorized fire engine arrived in Honolulu in 1912, and by 1920, the department was fully motorized. Two decades later, the Honolulu Fire Department faced its greatest challenge yet, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. On the morning of December 7, 1941, three companies, engines 1, 4, and 6, were sent to Hickam Air Force Base to fight the fires caused by the attacking planes. When the smoke finally cleared at Hickam Field, six firefighters were injured and three others were dead. The men were awarded Purple Hearts for their brave service, making them the only civilian firefighters to ever receive the honor. They're likely to remain the only ones, too, because the Purple Heart is now only awarded to members of the armed forces wounded in combat. When Hawaii became the 50th state of the United States in 1959, the Honolulu Fire Department claimed yet another distinction. It became the only fire department in the country to have been established by a ruling monarch. Not only that, it's the only one to have served its community under a monarchy, a provisional government, a republic, a territory, and lastly, a state of the union. That's a remarkable legacy of public service, and it continues to this day. The men and women of the Honolulu Fire Department no longer rely on buckets and hand-drawn engines, but they remain just as committed to keeping their city safe and fire-free. Mahalo. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you have a second and you're so inclined, you can follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can send them my way by writing to thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. 
And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.